Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. Good to see you, as always. You too. Um, I think today we're really just going to jump right into it. Yep, which is uh, a lot to lot to cover. A super interesting guest. Yes. Um, today we're going to discuss mass shootings. So for any of our listeners, we'll do a little trigger warning here. Um, maybe this might not be the podcast for you, or maybe you're interested in, in what we have to say. I will tell you that the views and opinions are our own, and they do not reflect any of any agency that we work for or have worked for. Um, so with that, let's get started, Nancy. Sure, let's get started. So our guest today um, is going to tell us, starting out, his story, which is, um, which is really something else, surviving a shooting in 1988. Um, and where that led him to great dedication to a crucial area of work. Phil Andrew is here, and he is the principal of PAX Group, which we'll hear about later on, and has over 21 years of experience as a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He served throughout the Midwest, New York, and overseas with expertise in crisis negotiation, undercover work, counterterrorism, national security, violence prevention, crimes against children, and social media. He has deployed regularly on domestic and, and international kidnappings and hostage takings and has received numerous FBI and U.S. Department of Justice awards. Phil leads the Archdiocese of Chicago's Violence Prevention Initiative, where he is responsible for safety programs and partnerships for 209 schools and 316 parishes. Above all of this, as I was saying, Phil's story, it's beyond inspiration, and uh, we'll hear about what he does, teach all of us, a lot to learn, a lot to uh, open our eyes about. Welcome, Phil Andrew. Welcome. It's great to be with you, ladies. We're very excited to have you today, um, both on a personal level and a professional level. I think you are like, you're it. You're the guy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> So let's get started. Let's let's go back to 1988. I haven't we haven't spoke earlier, so our audience knows um, because I wanted to hear it fresh from you. You know, um, take exactly. us take us through that situation. The what I would refer to it at my age is it was the uh, not original, but one of the first school shootings. Correct. It was certainly the first elementary school shooting, and there were other, like, lower-level shootings around the country, but this is the first one where there was, like, a clear kind of targeting of a community and, you know, a, a mass casualty event mm -hmm. that, uh, that really kind of stunned the whole country, and particularly the community it took place in. Right. So why don't you tell us the story, just to... Um, to get the listeners, to get us up to up to uh, speed speed on what this is what this is from. Sure. Well, you know, it's kind of um, a familiar story in ways that a a person with a long history of uh, mental challenges and emotional issues had been preparing an attack on the community and accessed uh, three weapons, uh, hundreds of rounds of ammunition in the months leading up to this event, and had actually taken some books out of the library and learned how to build a cyanide gas device and how to make poisons and, uh, and, and executed on all those things. So um, where I was that 
you know, kind of in my life, I was just a sophomore at mm -hmm. the University of Illinois. I happened to be the um, a freshly elected captain of the University of Illinois swimming team. So uh, I would say wow. I was a college swimmer. Okay. How old were you? I was 20 years old. Wow. And on May 19th of 1988, I took my last exam in the morning and my brother came down to U of I and picked me up when we loaded up stuff in the family car and I came home and that morning I had my last practice with my swim coach, Don Sammons, an amazing, you know, long, uh, kind of legendary swim coach at the University of Illinois. And I remember him saying, and when I got out of the pool after morning practice, he was like, you know, if you keep this up, you know, we're going to have a great fall. You know, wow. you just train hard. Yeah. And I was feeling really good about my swimming. I was actually finally feeling good about school. Uh, you know, I wasn't a great student my whole <laughs> life, but I sort of was figuring out that you study and uh, that helps. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and found kind of my major and, some, and, and, and a group that I really fit in with at Illinois. So I felt like, you know, as far as my life was going, it was going really well. And I'd landed an a internship at the Cook County State's Attorney's Office so I uh, was really looking forward to the summer. How cool. And the, uh, you know, unbeknownst to me that this, this sort of plan of attack was uh, ready to be executed the next morning. And um, May 20th, I woke up uh, hoping for some help with, from my mother to get some college shirts for my new cool job. And the, um, unbeknownst to us, a, uh, this person had uh, begun kind of her attack on the community and, and, and you know, in many ways, this is unusual because it was a 30-year-old woman. Mm -hmm. um, and again, with a long history, a divorce, all kinds of, of things went on in her life that were in many ways public and known to people in the community, known to law enforcement, and known to people that she had um, caused some sort of uh, uh, consternation or harm to. Harm to. But uh, she uh, begins by going to a, a day school up in Highland Park where she tried to ignite this cyanide gas device. Thankfully, it failed. You know, in today's terms, as you guys would know, we would call that a weapon of mass, mass destruction. Yes. I mean, this would mm -hmm. be, um, we don't see that very often, but this is uh, very, very serious and would have caused a, an, an immense amount of uh, mayhem at that school. And uh, that fusing fails and she's chased out of the school and she heads on down to uh, Winnetka where she visits a home that she had babysat at and the folks at that home were moving away and had planned to meet her. And I think they actually may have exchanged some gifts or whatever to, for her to say goodbye to the children. But she then uh, gets some gasoline from her car and goes in and, and ignites the stairway to the basement, trapping the mother and these small children in the house and then wow. escapes. Wow. Uh, the mother's able to break out a window. The kids are able to escape. The fire department is called. And, uh, and then she moves off then to the Hubbard Woods grade school, which is um, one, of, one of three elementary schools in Winnetka. And this was a place that she had in, intended to attack. She had sent a letter out to the community days earlier inviting people to bring their children. And uh, she enters the school uh, with several handguns and uh, basically enters a second grade classroom and open fire on gosh. second graders. Oh, uh, six second graders are shot. Uh, one is killed instantly. Uh, many are, are critically injured. And but for um, really a kind of a, a very kind of fateful and unlucky circumstance a few days before, 
um, there is a real mitigation of loss of life because the uh, the police uh, and many um, first responders are staged one block away from this crisis site at a funeral at a Catholic church. Oh. Just a few days oh. before this took place, uh, firemen uh, in the community had been fishing on Lake Michigan, and a storm came through, and uh, he was unable to get off the water in time. And, you know, pack away his stuff, and he got struck by lightning. Oh, gosh. And he was actually killed by this lightning wow. strike. So there was there was a funeral for a fireman going on literally one block away wow. from this crisis site. And that's, that's it, you know, it's kind of an unknown but very interesting fact. I never heard that. Because um, it allowed for a very quick response uh, for those first responders to get to the school. But it also closed an intersection and blocked her escape in the way that she came and sent her a different oh. direction. And what happened is she then uh, 180'd it, went down a dead-end street, got her car stuck, bailed out of her car, and then uh, um, entered a nearby home. And that was my childhood home. And uh, at that moment, my mother uh, and father had just gotten in. They, they were actually at this this. Uh, Funeral? This funeral service oh. for the mm -hmm. firemen, and I was just kind of rolling out of bed in my University of Illinois swimming T-shirt, and you know, waiting for my mom. And we were having a discussion in the kitchen about this funeral and how it, you know, it was just kind of a beautiful service for somebody who'd served the community, and how respectful it was, and you know, the the procession with the fire equipment and first uh, responder units, and. In through the side door comes a woman with two guns uh, claiming that we're her hostages. And uh, at first we really kind of kind of laugh. I mean, it was sort of... Surreal. Uh, yeah. Like yeah this, you must have been stunned. I mean, it's someone coming right through your door. Yeah. yeah and, you know, look, I'm, I'm just a college kid coming back from school. I don't know what's happened in the neighborhood mm -hmm. while I was gone. But, I mean, this is Winneke, Illinois. And, uh, you know, kind of a very, very suburban sort of wooded area. And there's just no context for this. And it really seemed like some sort of joke or mm -hmm. that there was going to be a punchline to it or an explanation. Mm -hmm. And that didn't come. You know, it really was very clear. And right away you see guns. I mean, she's yeah. not concealing. She has guns right. Yeah, right there pointed at us. And, uh, and so this turns into a discussion. You know, we ask who she is and what she wants and where she's going. And, and uh, basically, we get a story that she was attacked by somebody and she uh, shot at this person and she was escaping. And um, so this turned into kind of a, about, a, about a 40 minute to hour and 15 wow. dialogue with her where I was uh, able to talk to her into uh, releasing my folks. And um, toward the end of it, I was shot in an attempt to disarm her. And um, I was shot in the right side of my chest. Uh, the bullet uh, punctured both of my lungs, severed my esophagus, uh, put a hole in my uh, pancreas, my stomach, just grazing oh, uh, my membrane around my heart. And interestingly, it got lodged in my left lat, which is kind of funny. My When I returned to swimming at Illinois, my... My swim friends always gave me trouble, like I needed more core work because my lats were strong, but my <laughs> but my my stomach wasn't apparently. Uh. And um, and then she went to an upstairs bedroom where she took her own life. I was able managed to to escape the house uh, and was immediately met by first responders. 
Um, it took some time and the confusion and the chaos mm -hmm. to get me off the driveway and uh, get me in the ambulance to get me up to uh, the hospital. But uh, I remained conscious right up until uh, surgery and, um, and really did not have any understanding of, of really what happened? In a limited yeah. way, what took place in our house, but certainly in no way what took place in the community. We, we were completely blind as to what uh, had taken place. Well, it's different now. Everyone gets flashes on their phone, and, you know, if something happens immediately, practically everyone on earth would know. But, you know, it was real time, you know, Yeah, I'm in sure those your minutes. parents were in a pure panic, too. Yeah, interesting. Like, I think we were all kind of shocked by what happened. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, nobody appreciated that there was this sort of immediate threat. It was a little scary. It seemed dangerous. But it didn't seem like she came there to uh, hurt us. She really did seem like well, she, and we, to we, think she just wound up finding some people that she was sort of passing through the house and then got stuck. And to think that you engaged her in conversation, sort of like you said, you negotiated to get your parents out of there, and you're 20. I mean, it's pretty unreal. <laughs> it, you know, looking back on it, really pretty surreal. Uh, but, you know, also recognizing that, you know, a, a lot of what happens in crisis is sort of like what you've done, you know, up until that moment. You know, you sort of we have, have a saying in crisis and conflict management that uh, you never rise to the occasion. You always sink to your level of training. And, you know, the things that I had going for me is that, well, I was a swimmer. I was a little fast. I'm maybe not on my feet, but I, mm -hmm. I, I certainly had good lung capacity, which was helpful after yeah. I got shot. And uh, and just good rapport with my parents and, you know, kind of navigating this and, um, you know, uh, recognizing that, that n not immediately that like this was somebody that, that obviously was in distress. And, uh, and we met with a little bit of uh, empathy, a little bit of compassion. And I think that did buy us enough time to, to maneuver a bit. Of course, of course. Um, so how long after you were in the ambulance and you went through surgery and your parents are by your side, did you realize that this was even bigger than than just in your home? Yeah, that's a little fuzzy for me. You know, mm -hmm. kind of coming out of surgery, uh, I and, and just kind of being in a very you know drug induced state uh, and, and a lot of confusion. It seemed like it took me a few days to figure out like what went down, and with a lot of kind of bits and pieces coming to people. It's not like I was seeing TV or reading a newspaper. Uh, I was in really kind of dire yeah, place for about uh, a week or so. How long did it take you to recover from this? I was in the hospital for almost a month. I was, uh, you know, in a critical situation for almost a week, you know, with that kind of injury. Um, once the, you, they sort of s stop the bleeding and stuff, it really is about infection and, uh, Right. You know some of the damage to the organs. So uh, That's really that remarkable. was that was it. I, you know, in the end, I almost died from an infection. Oh my gosh! Wow, you're so resilient to have survived something like that. I can't even imagine the emotional scars that go along with that. Not just for you, but your ent entire family and your friend circle. So on that on that note, months later, as time went on and you were healing, and you know processing this and hearing also what had actually gone on did you ever go into a a state of trauma of just the whole oh my god i can't believe that happened or to me did that did it did things change from calm to trauma to 
Well, I think there was just sort of a kind of a fighting to stay alive piece. Mm -hmm. And then once that calmed down, there was a little bit of like, wow, there's a lot of kind of attention. And then when it slowed down just just enough to kind of focus on understanding what happened, I think that it was really dread. Mm -hmm. That uh, dread, one, that uh, I I couldn't believe what had happened. Um, The the notion that six children, six, six, yeah. Second graders had yeah. been shot, and um, and just getting the chronology of that, like I, I felt responsible for it. Uh, I didn't know, I, I you know, it had to be explained to me a few different times to understand that 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 happened before I was even involved, oh, gotcha. as opposed to that it happened afterward. Mm-hmm. And like, had I done enough? Mm-hmm. And you know, you definitely go through kind of the woulda, coulda, shoulda, mm-hmm. and uh, but um, you know, thankfully, you know, my my parents were safe. Um, you know. Uh, Five of the children, you know, um, got incredible services and uh, they survived. You know, Nick Corwin uh, was killed immediately. Um, so there, there definitely was a point of just kind of questioning a little bit of why me and, um, and, and what does this mean for me? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, swimming was very important to me, you know, where I was in my life and, you know, would I get those things back? And that, that, that began with a very long kind of recovery physically and, um, you know, mentally emotionally. toward and emotionally. Yeah. To, uh, to try to, to try to get back to kind of where I wanted, I, I, I thought that I should be, that I felt, you know, uh, I'd right. been a setback. But one thing that I remember very keenly is, um, is one of the doctors that worked on me. And um, this was this was pretty profound that at, at some point, somebody who was working on me on the driveway, uh, there was complete pandemonium and the, the first responders, there was a lot of yelling and confusion. And, and somebody came to my face and just said, keep breathing, um, stay with me. And uh, I said to the oxygen mask to this guy that I was a swimmer. Oh. And... And, 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 you know, and I, I think that probably <laughs> requires a little explanation, but that was my identity. You know, yeah. uh, I, I, I put a lot of my life into, yeah. you know, chasing the black line in the pool and, uh, and this, this physical sensation of my lungs having been collapsed, you know, the bullet passing through mm-hmm. both of them. And there was a real burning and kind of suffocation feeling that, I was kind of familiar with that it felt like the end of a swimming race where, wow. you know, there's a lot of hypoxic work done in, in uh, swimming and um, it was just familiar to me. So it didn't really freak me out. It kind of, yeah, it kind of reminded me of something I was uh, familiar with. And that's, that's what I wanted to communicate to this guy. And he grabbed it right away and was wow. like, you stay with me, swimmer. And it was like, um, and I, you know, I, I, when I, when I train people in crisis and conflict, I, like rapport can be established in a nanosecond, mm-hmm. and this guy did it. And it does make a difference. It it makes a difference. Connection. Wow. Yeah. So that that mantra kept on when I was passed off to the emergency room, and then the the OR. They still kept referring to me as a swimmer, and I was like, I had more people at my swim meet now than I ever had in my my real life. <laughs> the whole town came came out. I imagine after that. Yeah, but that doctor came to me after I recovered. And he asked me if I knew what happened, and we talked about it. And then he asked me what I was going to do about it. Interesting. Wow. Very interesting wow. question. Yeah. And your answer was? 
Well, you know, in truth, I didn't really know, mm-hmm. but it started this process of, of connecting that what happened to me um, and processing what happened and what happened to that whole, the whole town and those children was somehow going to be connected with what I was going to do about it. That, that there was, there was something purposeful some in, in taking the pain and the anguish and the, 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 uh, you know, the, the fear and the mm-hmm. trauma and doing something purposeful with it. And, um, and I think it's somewhere around that time, it, 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 you know, clicked in me that I should focus on making sure something like this doesn't happen again. Yeah. But that's a lot of weight to carry as a, as a young man. Well, it seemed like an easy solution at the time. Thank God I was 20. <laughs> That's a big talk about the weight on your shoulder. Yeah, I mean, you're just trying to recover and get through the next day. And it was almost like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Or at least maybe that's how you interpreted it. Maybe that wasn't necessarily his. I think that's kind of the beauty of what he asked. And I, it was very you know, and I, I've been in touch with him since. I mean, really? he's, he's he's become really? a kind of a fixture wow. in my life. Uh, we've we named our first born son after uh, uh. Dr. Charles Brown, but um, I think that this was his insight into uh, healing, and uh, he'd done what he could for me physically, and it was and he was tapping into you know the the mental health. He was tapping tapping into the spiritual. He was tapping mm-hmm. into the emotional. And recognizing that this was a road ahead of me, and that that maybe I should think about what I was gonna what I was gonna do about it. When you entered college before this whole thing happened, what was your freshman year? You said you were you had just were you a sophomore going into? I forget what you said. Uh, going uh, into your sophomore year. Uh, yeah, it's a it's so a long your, story. I was, was a transfer your... student sitting out, blah blah, blah you know. <laughs> but uh, I was a kid a kid who was getting on the right course. But but what was your so you were we're a swimmer. What was your area of study before this whole thing happened? Yeah, I was studying history and uh, really hoping to go into uh, law enforcement oh. or become oh, a prosecutor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I still regret that I, I never uh, found the time to join the armed forces. I was in uh, ROTC ROTC for a short while. Oh, wow. Had trouble kind of balancing that with swimming. Mm-hmm. But um, I was definitely... Uh, gravitating toward a career in in service a- around one of those one of those sectors. Oh wow! And this just catapulted you into it, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> your face tells me differently. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I feel like in some ways it delayed it. Okay. Uh, but I think it, it more so than sending me into the the career that uh, you know I, I, mm-hmm. I've I've joined. Um, I think it it informed the way that I was going to be within, you know, law enforcement. And the, it had more to do with the FBI agent that I, that I became and less about becoming, uh, you know, somebody in law enforcement. Got it. So what was your answer to the doctor? You know, honest, to, to, as I sit here, I don't know, but um, I think oh. that in many ways maybe I'm still answering that. Yeah. I was just thinking that I don't think the story's over. No. They- so so um, just because, just to backtrack, you, after this, you know, you go back to school. You mentioned to our listening audience you were in the FBI. You first finished school in law enforcement. What, what did you focus on after? I mean, considering this is your calling, your, your uh, calling of the moment. Before the FBI, what did you? Oh, sure. Well, when I, 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 you know, first I just focused on, like, getting physically better, 
being able to go back to school. That was that was a you know a challenge in and of itself. I'm sure. I went back to a swim team that was super supportive. Right. Uh, a coach that uh, could not have been um, you know, m- more engaged in supporting my growth. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I recognize that not everybody that has uh, an incident or a, a traumatic, you know, critical incident like this has as many kind of healthy systems to fall back on. And I was really, true. I was really blessed to have a lot. And 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 my sports team played a big role in that. Um, but I, I wanted to get back and be a contributor um, to that team. And it took a long time to do it. And uh, obviously I wanted to get back to school and um, finish out my scholarship. And, uh, but my, my, my focus changed a little bit and uh, I wound up in law school and, um, and then practiced law for a few years before joining the FBI. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, you had a calling because I still you know, in my mind, look at you as a 20-year-old in your kitchen or wherever you were in the house, sort of negotiating with this this mentally ill young girl that was struggling. So instead of freaking out, negotiating up to get your parents out, that's a, to me, a natural, a gift, a gift within you and now using it in so the right way. Well, there's certainly some lessons to learn in that scenario that played out later. I mean, as we, as I became uh, a negotiator for the FBI and then training other negotiators, you know, we got a few things right in yeah. those that the, the, yeah. the, those few moments back in 1980, and we got a few things wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but being be able to be kind of uh, introspective about that and kind of share that and mm-hmm. make that really almost like a case study for other negotiators and for others in law enforcement, um, I found like that was one of the ways of making a difference. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, coming from a law enforcement background, that the introspection of it probably gives better training than anything you could ever put in a PowerPoint. Yeah. Just my my personal opinion on that. Um, Because when I was training law enforcement officers as well, dealing with my son, who is... Um, severely mentally ill, that's the part they really understood. So, I mean, it's it's so amazing that you share your story and you share it with other law enforcement agencies. So they, they really grasp on to that and take it with them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, to me, this, your whole story adding into this is the, what will make a difference and continue. I mean, you're talking about the 1980s and so on now, now what do you look at everything as? I mean, I'm a layperson here in the room with two law enforcement individuals, and I watch the news as just, uh, you know, a person who has uh, the thoughts everywhere in the city of Chicago, what goes on, what's going on all over the country, our country, gun, the whole gun control, lack of, what, I mean, what is your view on all of this? I don't want to yeah, go well, into opinions, well, <clears throat> but I feel like... Um, what you've seen since 1988, since this happened, and you have your passion from that experience and your dedication to um, work like this through the FBI and so on, um, you know, don't you see, or do you see this going in a direction that can be turned around? I mean, you're someone who really has been there. Yeah, well, uh, I'll say it, it has been difficult to see the lessons uh, that we could have learned, and really we did learn, but we really didn't implement the learning mm-hmm. um, back in 1988. 
um, play out again and again. And, uh, you know, obvi- obviously we, we, you know, we have, a, we, that is the one thing that makes this country unique. You know, uh, there's plenty of countries that have violent video games. There's plenty of countries that have mental health challenges and, um, you know, family units challenges mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, poverty and, but this is the only country that, 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 that is killing itself with firearms and it has something to do. I mean, we are awash with firearms. There's between 350 to 400 million guns in private possession and it's just too many guns and mm-hmm. they are too, uh, easily available to folks that are a threat to themselves and others. And, you know, when you, when you break this down and it's really easy, once you kind of approach the data, um, you know, almost 66% of all firearm violence is suicide, you know, and that, that, that requires a very specific kind of intervention, as you guys know. And, uh, 2% of the firearm violence we see is the kind of this mass form, like, Mm -hmm. like we saw in the Winneka shooting, we see in Texas and Sandy Hook and in Florida, and that really drives a lot of our consciousness. Um, and there's so many intervention opportunities. And, and very similar to the 1988 shooting, uh, nearly f- between 56 to almost 78% of those shootings, there were some pre-incident indicator where there was an intervention opportunity. And, you know, that, that, and it, that didn't just fall back to law enforcement, but there was a community intervention. There could have been a a mental health intervention, there, uh, a social service intervention, um, or in, 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 you know, the best case scenario, all of those. I was just going to say together. all of the above. Yeah. And, and not to cut you off, I, I do want to say, because I, I feel like this gets harped on when we speak about mass shootings is that, oh, there's some type of a mental health issue going on, but the majority of people with mental health issues are nonviolent. That's yeah. absolutely right. Okay. It's a, and it's such an important point to put across when you saw the aftermath in discussion in Texas talking about, you know, it's, it's mental illness. It's mental illness. That's the top problem. Well, no. Yeah, we and can't that, always um, blame that. Uh, well, no, definitely. We cannot always blame that. That's not the equation. Um, someone with firearms who's shooting up a school certainly has mental illness, but it, it doesn't you know, there's plenty of people with mental illness. The majority would not do that, to say the least. Yeah, that's correct. They're more but, they're more likely to hurt themselves than they are other people. Or be hurt. Or be yeah. hurt. Yes, be a victim of a of a crime for sure. So so what is your feeling regarding uh, there's no actual fix to this problem, this mass shooting problem. But when you're talking about early interventions, what are you talking about with that specifically? The, the tools that I that you know we're seeing are being really useful, you know, from a uh, evidence based kind of a data standpoint, are the effective use of you know red flag laws or firearms. And, and what are orders. and what are those for our listening audience that maybe isn't from the United States or hasn't heard of that? Or before? even in the United States, a sure. lot of red flag laws are uh, all over the news now. Just mm-hmm. to define yeah. that would be great. Yeah, it basically allows uh, family, uh, community, and police to petition a court to temporarily uh, remove firearms from somebody that has presented uh, themselves as a threat to themselves or others in the community. 
and uh, and that's usually for some duration. It could be you know fourteen days or you know thirty days. It depends on the jurisdiction, and then a hearing takes place where um, an assessment, a full assessment, is made where you know mental health and social service providers are able to lean in, and uh, the court's able to make an assessment as to whether you know somebody is uh, in, in, we're leaving somebody in a good place to um, you know to avoid harm to themselves or the community. And those are being used very effectively in um, circumstances where the community steps up and coordinates with law enforcement and uh, the court system to intervene. So that's that's one place that could make a big difference um, because so many of these uh, incidents of mass violence, there is some pre-incident indicator Agreed. that allows for mm-hmm. intervention. Like when they've interviewed the families or what have you, they'll realize we saw this, we thought this, we didn't didn't know we could stop it in that way. I mean, this is also education. I feel yeah. like I feel like the one thing, you know, there's so much being talked about on the news. Um, talking about red flag laws, people have to know what they are and how they can how they can take this and be effective with it. Uh, they don't know it's there. Most people that are in these situations, or not most, but many, I'm assuming, in these dysfunctional situations don't realize the power they have to do that. So it exists, but, you know, it's it's not going to work if someone doesn't take a, take advantage of it. That's right. That's right. And you're, what you're keying on there, just like, you know, more public education around this, you know, we can also kind of take action ourselves if we have guns in our home mm-hmm. and we know that we have folks that are at risk, that um, the simplest thing is just to make sure that we keep those guns uh, locked up. And, uh, you know, there's no controversy in this, you know, whether you're, uh, you know, a police officer or, uh, you know, an NRA member, you know, if you're just following what the industry standards are for safe storage, mm-hmm. you're going a long way. And, um, you know, that's another interesting data point is that um, nearly 80% of the firearms that are used in school violence are guns that were brought from home. Wow, so, I did not know, you know like, And when we think of like, hey, low-level kind of mm-hmm. low-hanging fruit for intervention opportunities, mm-hmm. hey, I'll keep those guns locked up. You know, don't allow easy access to firearms to children. And... Um, wow, that would go a long way into providing a lot of protection to our schools. Yeah. You know, the other thing is um, I get a lot of questions from parents, being that I'm in law enforcement, asking about they're they're afraid. They're afraid to to call the police to do an intervention to – I'm speaking more of an adult age where they can access a gun or buy a weapon, um, and they don't – want to take it from them because they're afraid of what is going to happen in that scenario that the person may have a total meltdown and become violent and violent toward them and now they're risking their life so they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place yeah those are those are tough situations and um but you know by not addressing them we're certainly not going to make them any safer and that that goes a long way toward you know when we talk about crisis and conflict uh, navigation and planning, is you know building out your team in advance. Mm-hmm. That it's so important to recognize what resources there are in your community and have a relationship with 
you know, law enforcement and have relationship with community mental health providers that can provide some guidance here. I mean, this, you know, what you're describing is very much like potentially, uh, you know, domestic abuse situation where there's fear of, gosh, if I say anything, it'll only become worse. Well, if, if, but it will only become worse if you don't Joe say something. And, and, and there are resources to help people navigate that, to help them plan, to help them get to a safe place. And, um, and it's very important that we take those steps because not only that become a risk to that individual, but obviously that it could become a risk to their family, and we've seen how it can play out into the community. community. So so often we've said, I, I think about this when you're talking about in that perspective, that we tell families that have someone who is prone to violence and has mental illness in the family, and uh, they live in a certain community, before the crisis hits, go visit the police, the police department, see if they have a CIT or social worker on staff, tell them what's going on so that if and, and that you may have to call. I mean, prepare ahead of time, especially if you're intimidated by that person. You know, I mean, really, so that you can pick up the phone, call, and they will know your story and be ready to, to you know, come help. And I, I feel like it's preparation and education, and that takes away from the intimidation factor. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm talking you. about usually, you know, with my discussions with these families are without guns, but just in general, preparation for the crisis, prior to the crisis. Yeah, I mean, when I'm um, speaking with families or caregivers, uh, I try to tell them that all the time. Get in touch with your local agency. Find out what kind of crisis help you have in your community. I think a lot of the problem where where things fall through the cracks in this nation is that they do call. But as you know, with people with mental health, one minute they can be in a full-blown crisis, and the next minute they can be calmed down. So by the time the crisis intervention team arrives, there's nothing happening. And it the laws vary from state to state in how they can intervene. So, you know, in that type of circumstance, um, I'm not really sure what to advise caregivers to do. Obviously, removing weapons at all costs, I, I never... Removing or locking up. Yeah. I mean, it should be a law if you have something in the house. Even if there's no one at risk in your mind, lock them up. There should just be a zero-tolerance lock-up. If you want to own a weapon, lock it up. And, uh, you know, not have the decision on the, the people that aren't sure if they have a problem. I mean, yeah, then you get into a bunch of... <laughs> well, it, 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 look, it's a safe I mean, I'm practice. the layperson. I, mean, I, mean, I, I agree you know, with you 100%. I have been in law enforcement for our careers. I, and, yeah. Right, I'm the layperson here, <laughs> I know, but and the I gun don't lovers, have any guns. The but gun lovers are, are going to freak out a but, little. But you know what, though? Yeah, you know, what, what, I, what I find is, you know, <laughs> folks that, that love guns and are really, like, um, take seriously the mm -hmm. sport and uh, preparation, they, they also really take safety seriously. I agree with and, that, yes. Um, you know, I have just not met a lot of people that I felt like, wow, you're a, you're you're just unsafe. Mm -hmm. Because they really build safety into their, um, you know, into their, their, their whole routine. And this is just, it's just important to remind everybody else that, that, that the people who are serious, you know, about, you know, um, firearms are very serious about safety. Yes. And that... That, that we should talk about that. There should be an expectation that, you know, if you've got a firearm, you are, you are 
um, operating that, storing that, and maintaining that safe for yourself and for all those around you. So Absolutely. I, I, I think that most people, you know, with, with, with all the guns and gun owners we have mm-hmm. in the country, most people take it really seriously. But I think that, you know, some folks have not been indoctrinated in that same way. Right. That it really is about safety first mm-hmm. and that, you know, this is, this is a, you know, a, a dangerous instrument that um, has, has, a, has its place as a tool but requires a lot of uh, high-level training yes. and, you know, being 100%. very specific about a routine. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you something on that note. Do you think that it really will make a difference when states – change the law from 18 to 21 to purchase a firearm. To me, I I just look at 18 to 21, I mean... The brain doesn't even develop until you're 25. I just don't... I I just do not think that holds any water at all. Well, you know, the way... Statistically, the way it breaks out is we see a a lot of mass violence and gun violence committed by folks that are under 21. And for precisely the reasons you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, their, their brains are developed, you know, what, what, uh, impulsivity, yeah, control. what neurologists and, you know, mm-hmm. scientists are telling us, or it'd be better if it's 26, but these yeah. are some I of mean, the compromises. 21, two years, you know, or three years. I mean, it's just, <sighs> this is why we're not lawmakers. Yeah. yeah. But, but, and now this is like. I didn't do any professional research into this or anything, <laughs> so let me just preface this. But oftentimes what I've read on Google is that a lot of these active shooters had given signs or something. Like people knew. They had told someone. I mean, going back to Columbine uh, and stuff like that, and in your instance, she sent, she mailed a letter, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you... Well, she 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 did a lot of things. They were also accused that she was right. highly unstable. Yeah. I mean, just to right. And in fact, the local police department was doing what it could with the tools that it had at the time to right. remove those weapons. Now, if Illinois had had a red flag law in 1988, she wouldn't you, have. You guys would be talking to me about swimming right now. Oh yeah, that'd be much better conversation. <laughs> yeah, but I think we need to go back to the old adage. You know, like after 9-11, if you see something, say something. That's right. A lot of other kids are, are scared to say things, and I'm, I'm not quite sure why. I can't get into the teenage brain. Um, but, you know, they'll see something on social media or their friend will say something to them, and I maybe they take it as a joke, maybe they don't think they're serious, but I think we need to start opening up those conversations that if someone is saying something about, taking other people's lives or threatening anyone with a weapon or obtaining weapons, then we have to notify the proper authorities, teachers, counselors, parents, whomever is in that child's community. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, with, with my work now, I spend a lot of time sensitizing uh, schools and communities to, you know, really educate youth as to what they should be talking about. That's and great. The you know that's that's a key point there. You know if 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 a child sees another child posting pictures of themselves with a gun, you know on social media, that they should know that that's something that they should talk to an adult about. Mm-hmm. And if they don't feel comfortable, there should be an anonymous way for them that yeah. to, them to get that information to. 
you know, leaders to yes. authorities, you know, or school folks so that, that there can or be... Or even so- the social media platform. Can't you report it? In, in some cases, you know, that is a the long way around. I know. Um, I mean, you know, have, having, having worked on cases with them, you know, they mm-hmm. are... They are as much of, uh, they're really a, a, a double-edged sword, right? right? That they're out there, they're sharing information, they're providing a lot of connectivity, but they're also providing a lot of exposure and um, that that it takes time to digest and, mm-hmm. and, and get kind of an official response to. So um, look, the, the, the youth are in the best position to know when they see something unusual. And we've just got to, we've got it just as, as with, you know, mental health, we got to get over this kind of the stigma as you're not a tattletale, you're not ratting somebody out, but it's also, you know, this isn't just like siren and lights, you know, to a young person's home because they, they, they posted a picture, but this is an intervention opportunity. Yes. You know, what is happening? If somebody, you know, if a child's posting a picture with firearms, you know, it, it, it's a great opportunity to find out what's going on with that child, what's going on in that child's home and surge support. You know, some mm-hmm. of it's going to be mental health, some of it could be social services. And once you find out what the needs are in that home, in that family, with that child, um, we're doing a lot to kind of off-ramp, you know, potential down the road, dangerous behavior. Right. Do you think that now now that, it, you know, we've had such, we are in such an epidemic of shootings, mass shootings, school shootings, shopping centers, you know, everywhere, all over, do you think that people, um, that stigma is and the intimidation to report this is getting better? I mean, I would think after the Texas situation um, that that even kids are traumatized to go to school. I mean, they are, anyway, all of these, you know, the constant news. P- parents are traumatized. The kids are traumatized. That maybe, do you feel as though it would there's an increase of reporting and observation and see something, say something. Well, I, I, you know, I think a few things here. I think with everything that's happening, I think there's an ambient level of anxiety, mm-hmm. whether it be you sure. know, coming out of the pandemic. Um, I think that, uh, you know, our nation has uh, been on a steady dose of anxiety since 9-11. Yes. And I think it really, we haven't really seen anything effectively deployed to sort of intervene on that. But what I will say is that, you know, when when people are stunned and traumatized, you know, first thing is, you know, is fear and concern and maybe, you know, that fight or flight to just get away from it. I don't want to see it. I don't want, I, 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 you know, like these are too hard of conversations to have. But I think people also recognize that uh, that's not really a sustainable mode and that, our safety is really dependent on us really connecting more and working in more collaboration with each other. And that's where I think you are seeing folks recognize that, hey, look, I don't want to live in a community where I'm worried about bringing my children to school. I don't want to live in a city where I'm worried about gun violence. And they're recognizing there's something that they personally can do. Accountability to some degree. Yeah. And stepping up to it. And like you say, it. some of it is see something, say something. Some of it is, hey, what can I do in my own home to secure weapons and to make sure that my, my children and you know, those that I love uh, understand that if, I, if they see something concerning out there, that they should report it. And if, 
when you're when you are feeling alone and you're not connected, that that maybe that is a time. You know, you, maybe you're the one that could do the outreach. You should reach across the street and find out what's going on with your neighbor, because they, in all likelihood, have the same concern around safety. And there's something you could do together to absolutely. Uh, or if you're the person who's having these impulsive thoughts on a consistent basis and there's no shame in just asking for help and, and letting people know. I yeah, mean, very true. I mean, we we hear from so many people struggling themselves and the stigma is getting a little better with coming out and mm-hmm. reaching out for help that uh, with that. I, I agree, Julie. I think that um, maybe that individual that wouldn't have reached out 10 years ago would now and say, I really need help. I'm scared about my thoughts. Absolutely. I think so. I think that we've really seen, um, you know, and that's one of the things, maybe one of the positive outcomes with the pandemic is, you know, whether it be organizations and, you know, corporations really recognizing the value of, you know, employee assistance programs and wellness programs. And and including mental health in that mental wellness. Exactly. And breaking down that stigma that it's okay to say, gosh, you know, I'm not doing, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing all right. Mm-hmm. And that there is a program and people recognize that and, and, you know, granting time off and really embracing that, that that is part of keeping an employee productive. Yes. You know, that really surging of and themselves, that. Of themselves or family members. I've done a lot of lunch and learn kind of um, talks about mental health to over the years to companies where it's not just about the employees, it's their children, their families. I speak Spanish too, so I've gone into the, you know, all Spanish speaking lunch hour and a lot of times, you know, people approach the table asking for resources and and all of that kind of thing after for their families. So I think, again, that's getting better. You know, it used to be, I don't want to tell anybody that I'm worried about my son or my daughter or my husband. You know, it's, uh, that part's getting better and that should help with, to some degree, hopefully with some of this gun violence. But, you know, to me, it's the education and the guns. I know you two are, you know, law enforcement. And I look at what the statistics in Japan, lack of guns, I wish we could wave a magic wand, dial back, and get rid of these guns. I mean, I just, yeah. uh, I know it's its the opinion that from the person sitting here, you know, my side of the table with this, but I just, the the guns in general are just too many. It's just, um, should be zero tolerance with so much of this. Well, you know, things did get a little <laughs> whacked in this country, you know, and, and you can trace it right back it's like a down. runaway train. Yeah, to, uh, you know, really in the 1970s, um, right up until that point, the uh, the National Rifle Association was a conservation, marksman, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, group that uh, really had brought a lot of honor and pride to mm-hmm. the, the, the craft around gun making and marksmanship. And there was uh, basically a coup on the NRA's board in the 70s and when the explosive manuf- firearm manufacturers and uh, ammunition makers took over the board. And then it really became a lobby to just create laws and policies and scenarios where it was about selling guns. Yeah. And it's all about money. Changed everything. It's all about money. Yeah. And sadly, you know, we're living with the consequences of this and the number of guns that were sold during the pandemic. um, You know, we're talking about tens of 
millions of guns. Yeah, there was a real paranoia, which we can go into in the in the next hour. But yeah, I agree. The pandemic really made people a little off their rocker. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that these thing the same things don't work, right? That uh, you know, remove, removing guns from dangerous situations, making sure that uh, dangerous and unstable people don't get guns, and keeping guns locked up. You know. Yes, yeah, so you're saying um, so that, all of this, all yeah. of like if people really, you're laying out such a good basic plan. Julie, as my dear friend and law enforcement professional, says something often, which is bringing things back to the basic rule of thumb. And I really think about that. You know, something as sim- simple as see something, say something. You know, a person who has been involved in a shooting or their children or what have you, you know, yourself, but. Uh, they might say, oh, like that's going to do anything. But all of this and accountability for people to be educated, even in mental illness and signs and symptoms and uh, knowing about the red flag laws of what they what their rights are and what they can do, all of that together, if it was laid out properly, uh, could help. I feel like it's sort of sporadically thrown out there in the news and and it doesn't seem as though it would ever be effective. It's like a point here, a point there. And if it was really laid out to everybody. But There's layers to it. It's not, yeah. it's not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. No, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big problem. It's but a it's multi-faceted mm-hmm. solution and it needs a lot of collaboration, a lot of cooperation mm-hmm. and a lot of coordination. Mm-hmm. And it, but, you know, when you think of anything that is hard, yep. anything yep. that is challenging, whether yep. you want to go to the moon or you want to run mm-hmm. a city or you – like, it's hard stuff and it takes a lot of people working together in coordination with the same goal. And we're going to get there. I agree with Well, that. I feel like this – the anger, the level of um, discussion in this country after the Robb Elementary School in, in Texas – Really, and Buffalo, and and Buffalo, right after, right, right after one another, um, really took this to a different level. And those Sandy Hook parents saying, "How could this happen? Nothing was done in between all these years." Um, you know, hopefully, it will somehow rise to a point of making a change. There's yeah. got to be some kind of change. Well, you know, uh, I don't think it's fair to say nothing was done. Because one thing that was done is a community was created, and oh, whether it be the, yeah. you know, it's a work, very good point. The folks that you know in my community that uh, you know started working on this to the Sandy Hook, um, you know, survivors mm-hmm. and their family to, you know, Florida and now Texas and, and Buffalo. Um, there's a community, Parkland, Florida, yeah. in tragedy. Yes, and that you know, one, it, it's very important to you know recovery, mm-hmm. but it's really important in terms of, of the ability to actually get something done. So we have an infrastructure now, you know, like these didn't happen in a vacuum. No. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's not as this is just a simple repeat. It's repeated, but there's an infrastructure there that recognizes the pattern, sees it as similar mm-hmm. and wants to do something about it. Change. But now it's organized and a yeah. community behind it. That's yep. a very interesting point, and I do feel like it will get momentum. You're right. There's strength that's in numbers. Some, that's something strength that's big. Numbers. I stand corrected. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor at mail.com. That's behindourdoor at mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, Leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.